Hey, Cabot Cove Gazette fans, this is TJ coming to you with a little favor to ask of you. So my dear colleague and co-host Bridget is currently undertaking a survey on both Murder, She Wrote and Angela Lansbury fandom for a book she is currently writing. So if you are as in love with either Murder, She Wrote or Angela Lansbury as we are, we, she and I would love it if you could take about 30 minutes, it's uh, 30 questions on the questionnaire, to speak a little bit about your own fandom, what drew you to Murder, She Wrote, and so forth. And you can find the link for it on our Cabot Cove Gazette social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks very much in advance. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Cabot Cove Gazette. I'm Bridget Keys, And I'm TJ West. And today we are talking about the third episode of Murder, She Wrote, Deadly Lady. Uh, the title of the episode... It references a hurricane that happens during which a man is, we think, washed overboard from a ship um, that he's on with his four daughters. And what I like about this episode is it turns out he's actually still alive until he isn't, which is a common thing that happens in Murder, She Wrote. Um, So did you want to give us our little 15-word summary? That was my 15-word summary. Oh, I thought we were going to get more of official. <laughs> okay, you but do yeah, it. You you do what you do a better one. Let's see yours. Okay, so uh, let's see. Family dysfunction on board boat invades Cap- Cabot Cove. Murder ensues and is solved. It sounds like you're composing a telegram when you do those. I know, but you know, you're thinking about it on the fly. Which, by the way, I, I would say that I'm actually that was a pretty good summary. It was out a pretty good exactly. summary. I like that you always want to like reward yourself. You praise yourself. Well, it yeah, was a pretty I mean, good summary, uh, Teach. You're not going to do it, so somebody has to. All right. So <laughs> I think been... <laughs> really we need to talk about the most important thing about this episode. So this is the first episode set in Cabot Cove. Um, so this is when we meet all the regulars. We had a couple of scenes in Cabot Cove in the pilot, The Murder of Sherlock Holmes, the first two episodes of the series. But they were people we never saw again. <laughs> and in this one, we get introduced to our regulars, including Sheriff Amos Tupper, Tupper. everybody's favorite, Tom Bosley. And Ethan, Claude Akins. Ethan, we hardly knew ye. TJ, do you like do you Ethan say or do you like Seth better? Seth, just because, well, for our listeners, which we didn't mention this in our inaugural episode, but we'll say it now, uh, Bridget and I have long kind of had a Jessica-Seth relationship. Uh, I have no is. idea what you're talking about. Uh, she knows exactly. <laughs> listeners, she knows exactly what we're ta- what I'm talking about. I used to deliberately be like, listen, woman. <laughs> he deliberately kind of... calls me woman, you guys. Can you imagine? <laughs> As a deliberate homage to Seth Hazlitt. Um, Seth and Jessica. Knowing Seth and Jessica. So he, she knows very well that I would never, never dismissively refer to someone as woman. But I'm merely doing a little homage to everyone's favorite curmudgeonly doctor. Small town curmudgeonly, Doctor Seth Hazlitt. So the answer is, I prefer Seth. Is the because you're a small to town curmudgeon, but <laughs> that is um, exactly and a doctor. You're a PhD. You're a doctor. But you know, so, we have we don't. So Seth Hazlitt is not in the first episode, uh, first season of Murder She Wrote. He comes in in season two, and so in the first season, Jessica's best friend is Ethan. But you know, they really have the same dynamic. Like he calls Jessica woman. He calls her a nitwit at one point, but like very lovingly, uh, he, mm-hmm. calls he calls her, her Dottie Jessie at one point. Yeah, so we know that they're, like, they're really good friends. They're good enough friends to, like, tease each other and insult each other. And they also go fishing at the end. Like, at the you know, when they drive off, like, she's like, well, I'll teach you, get, what is it, some deep, I'll teach you some deep sea angling techniques or something. I don't know. I don't, I'm not a fisherman, but. Yes. Um, 
might come as a surprise to our listeners that I'm not a, I'm not an old salty dog as it were. But anyway, I digress. And he's going to um, bait her hooks for her because that's what he, he does. Because does. he's very chivalrous. Yeah. Yes. We also get her dynamic with Amos Tupper in this. So you know, we for us, no time has passed between this and the murder of Sherlock Holmes. But um, we're told throughout this that she has books, plural. So mm-hmm. we can assume some time has passed, especially since in the last episode, she pledged she'd never write another mystery novel. Uh, and Amos, you know, he call once they, once they think there's been a murder, he calls her and he's like, hey, there's been a murder. And she's like, oh, I'll be right there. So we established that they already have this relationship where she's known to help police solve crimes, especially murders. And they don't really tell us like, how that came about right that's just established into their relationship right and i yeah and also what's very quickly established is that amos has a not quite antagonistic but he's very very skeptical of every kind of step that jessica makes like he's always like now listen here miss Fletcher," like in that very broad new england accent (laughs) that bosley adopts for this particular role uh you know ollie's calling it her miss fletcher (laughs) and so you know he seems to always want to rush to the conclusion. Like he always assumes that the next break in the case is the break and that the yes. nothing needs more to be said. But Jessica was like, well, no, I don't think that's actually true. And then he's like, now listen here, Miss Fletcher. I've got, I've got all the pieces here and I don't need you anymore. And so. Oh, but uh, he listens to her too. Oh, he I know. Does. I just, the, I, my mother who I watched this show with and I both have a, shall we say slightly uh, antagonistic relationship to Amos Tupper. We find him sometimes a little insufferable. So Amos Tupper is our um, sheriff for the first few seasons, and then he's replaced by Mort Metzger. Right. And uh, a brief, both except for a brief interlude with John Aston, whose character's name I can't recall, but he ends up being the murderer, so. Yes, but that was when Amos tried to retire and then couldn't because he <laughs> retired for was a murderer. Um, but, but I guess my question then is, Teach, you know, I, it's a point of controversy among Murder, She Wrote fans as to which sheriff you prefer. But it sounds like you're not an Amos Tupper fan. But I don't really like Mort either. So I don't know. that. Um, <laughs> I don't know that I have a preference between which one is less annoying. Maybe you like the big city guys that she works with in New York and San Francisco then. Uh, I mean, I just love Jessica. And so anyone who stands in her way is annoying to me. Like, just listen to Jessica, damn it. Like, she knows what she's, <laughs> she knows you. what's up. I think what I like, I, I love Mort. I think Mort's a reasonable guy, and we'll talk about him in future episodes when we get there. But what I love about Amos is that he's, like, so lovable and goofy, and, like, he really does listen to her. I think he knows she's smarter than him and can figure stuff out that he can't. Um, and I appreciate okay. that because you wouldn't I'm expect that, that from, as... like, the small-town sheriff guy, right? I'm willing to entertain that as, a, as, a, as, an, as an acceptable reading. <laughs> So we should get to the meat of the episode. So we have these four daughters telling their story about how dad washed overboard, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Meanwhile, Jessica finds some guy who calls himself a hobo working in her garden and decides weirdly that she should have him come inside for breakfast and let him stay in her house when she's not home. And he's going to fix up the house in exchange for food. And she is so weirdly trusting of this guy, isn't she? Well, I mean, remember, this is 1980s. This is small town Maine. Like, you know, this is a kind of, and of course, there's something vaguely utopian about this. But, you know, this was a different time, like when we were more innocent and didn't have to lock our doors every night. And we could leave complete strangers behind because we realized they weren't a hobo, as Jessica does. She's like, you made made several mistakes. That's a really interesting moment when she's like, you know, she pokes holes in his 
facade. Yes. She's like, well, your clothes are too well tailored. You also have a watch where, you know, you're, there's a, a tan line where your watch used to be. You refer to it as hoboing when really the term, what did she say? Boeing, I think is yep. what she says. Uh, but, but this is my question. So if Jessica can immediately see through that this is not a homeless person, this is not a transient person, this is some guy who's masquerading as such, uh, why does she not connect that this could be the guy who washed overboard from the boat? Why is that such a revelation later in the episode? That's a good question. I mean, she's just so, you know, she's so delighted because there's obviously chemistry between the two of them. And which, by the way, before we go any further, I feel it is be, it is incumbent upon me to point out that this is played by none other than uh, Howard Duff. And if you're an 80s aficionado of television, you know that he also appeared in an episode of The Golden Girls, which Bridget and I are also devout fans of, as Giovanni, uh, Giuseppe Mangiacavallo that Sophia curses to lose all of his money. So clearly he did at the, at some, you know, the, the curse hit him at some point. So I just wanted to bring that up just before I forget. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of famous guest stars in this episode. Um, we have Richard Hatch, who is mm -hmm. a.k.a. Uh, Apollo in the original Battlestar Galactica, a.k.a. Tom Zarek in the Battlestar Galactica reboot. So that was fun for me because I just came off a stint watching that series all the way through. The four sisters are played by women who have, you know, storied TV careers, but they all end up appearing in future Murder, She Wrote episodes, too, which is something the series did a lot. Uh, it... it it recycled its own guest stars many times. Captain Janeway, when we get to you, mm -hmm. man, you kill a lot, Captain Janeway. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So an 80s star-studded so, yeah, episode. I, it was a star-studded episode. And like I said, I enjoyed the fact that, two, that twofold. One, that as you say, it establishes Cabot Cove as the location where all, you know a lot of former future episodes are going to be set which is again an homage to like saint mary mead the home of jane definitely Marple. um jessica's sort of intertext um and her precursor in this genre uh and then secondly that also that early exchange between her and ralph just d demonstrates once again jessica's astute powers of observation and that you know she notices a lot about a person right away um and that she has the ability to see beyond the surface and see what's actually um the things they reveal about themselves inadvertently, including the fact that he says, you know, says something about her book, which hasn't even been published yet because it's an advanced copy. So he couldn't have known anything about it. Yeah, he pretends that he's read a book that's sitting on her table. And she's like, nope, nice try. That's the advanced copy. Uh-huh. You couldn't have read it. Nice try, though. <laughs> yes. And of course, you know, it comes as no surprise to people. You've seen the episode anyway, listeners. But um, if you haven't seen it in a while, it should come as no surprise that ultimately it's Jessica's deductive powers that determine who the murderer was. Mm -hmm. um, involving a plot with shoes. And I got to tell you, you know, this whole shoe thing is really fascinating to me. First of all, just because I really like shoes and high heels. But um, I noticed this time a, a, what I think is a continuity mistake in the episode, Teach. Oh, do tell. Well, so the whole idea is that they find Nan's, one of the daughters, Nan's pink heels down by the waterfront, right? Where she supposedly lost them when she killed her dad who does end up dead right um but nan says she never even unpacked them so somebody in theory must have taken them out of her luggage and put them at the waterfront to implicate her in the murder right that's sort of the whole premise but there's this scene earlier it's supposed to take place earlier that same day and we see her walking through a cemetery with her boyfriend and i could swear she's wearing the same shoes oh the That's shoes the, she the said she never unpacked. Of high def, right? 
Yeah, this is what happens when you watch like remastered super high def episodes. I'm pretty sure the costume department made an error. Now someone of course is going to start writing into us and talking on social media about how we're wrong or right, but uh, it was really fascinating to me to catch. I was also just fascinated that the whole thing hinges on these shoes um, and that Jessica immediately knew they were Nan's. So we, we can, I guess, assume that because she was so astute at the kitchen and understanding that Ralph the hobo was actually not a hobo, uh, that she's someone who really pays attention to details. But it also just kind of made me wonder if like maybe she has a shoe fetish. Why'd she know what Nan's shoes look like so easily? Uh-huh. Yeah, and it's a, I mean, it's she's also just, fetish. you know, you're I mean, not having doesn't. this. You're like, this is a line of discussion that I did not thought, think we were going to go down. J.B. Fletcher, shoe fetishist. <laughs> That'll be the line. That's, that's the territory that we're marking out here, listeners. This is the kind of <laughs> podcast you're signing up for, just so you know. There'll be lots more of this to come, I'm sure. That's going to be the tagline of this episode. Jessica, J.B. Fletcher. J.B. Fletcher, shoe fetishist. <laughs> but it is true. I mean, I do think that you're like, that's part of what strikes me is about how uh, nicely constructed this episode is because we're already given clues with her exchange with Ralph that she pays attention to clothing like that it's sartorial elements that she and by the way just as a brief aside I am have a penchant for using overwrought vocabulary so I just want to give our listeners an advance notice that uh, you don't there'll be times when I get and I get a little bit pretentious so I expect Bridget will poke holes in my I will my, always uh, be here to make fun of him for this yeah. Yes. But while a, we're talking about a... fashion, you know, we should talk about Jessica's fashion because there's like entire blogs devoted to her clothing. And if for much of the episode, I was just absolutely fascinated by what she was wearing. She's wearing a blue striped button down. Right. And she has a purple hoodie over that. And then she has a red sweater tied around her shoulders. Mm-hmm. Like, why would you ever have a sweater with a hoodie? What is this fashion choice? Like, I love her clothing so much. 1980s New England would be... 1980s New England old lady would be my assumption. A sweater over a hoodie. Yeah. (laughs) But also, can we talk about how frequently Jessica's running everywhere or biking everywhere? Like, this is one fit old lady. And I actually mean that both in terms of Jessica, the character, but also, can we talk about how much stamina Angela Lansbury has to have had, even to just, like, run that much? Because you know what? She's in her 60s by this point. Like... She is. You know... I mean, that's pretty amazing. No, robust. she's, uh, I think, 58 by this point. She's 70 in the final season. Okay. So she's so probably late so, 50s like... now. And she's running. She does a lot of jogging in this episode. She's biking all the time. Uh, I mean, of course, yeah. you know, the woman is not just turned, what, 96? So I'm not, or 97. So I'm not surprised that, you know, that she has a sort of physical regimen that allows her to do all of this kind of physical activity. But it just, I mean, I like that about the show, that it shows her as not just. As, as something different than Miss Marple, like I said earlier, her intertext, like Miss Marple is pretty like, stationary. Like she'll get around, but she does. I can't imagine Miss Marple jogging around St. Mary Mead. But yeah, I think, Ms. Like, that's part of what definitely more geriatric. Yeah, but this is what I love about Jessica. She's just like she's out there doing stuff. Like she's a, a dynamic force of just sort of propulsive energy. Like she's always going somewhere and doing something. And I really enjoy that about her. That she's just constantly in motion. Well, you've mentioned the um, the Golden Girls teach, and I think that's a fair um, contemporary to this series because they're both about how women 
later in life in your 50s and 60s can have like a really thriving social life you can have a you can be really physically active um, you can just have lots of fun at that point in your life which it seems kind of silly to us now but i don't think that we should forget that like for the early 80s that's a pretty provocative message right and mm-hmm. the baby boom generation wasn't that old yet and so we still had this idea that like 60 was old uh, 60 isn't old anymore to us but you know to see people who would be in their late 50s or 60s being so physically active and just having so much fun with life right I, it's a really cool message mm-hmm. and one of the other things i enjoyed about this episode i did enjoy the the discussions between jessica and ralph like i found that to be some of the highlights of the episode in particular the moment where she sees him holding the pipe that belonged to her, yes. her husband and i mean that i mean i'm susceptible to like you know to feelings anyway but it was just you i loved the way that it, it showed that jessica really does mourn her husband which we got inklings of that in the previous episode in the premiere but i really liked that it sh- this is a, again another softer more emotional side of jessica that we don't always get in subsequent seasons and so i liked that we got the sense that she's a real person who really is grieving a husband who died not too long ago So they never told us how long ago Frank actually died, but you do get the feeling from these early episodes that it must have been pretty recent because the pain is still really fresh in ways that it isn't in later Mm -hmm. seasons. Yeah, I actually wrote down that the the scene where Ralph picks up Frank's pipe is emotional whiplash, right? The episode kind of has one tone and then all of a sudden it really slows down and there's this tinkly piano music and everything's happening slowly as he's holding the pipe and she looks and sees that he's holding the pipe and she says that was frank's you know and what was really surprising to me was that she said he should keep it Mm -hmm. um, because for her it would just be sitting around collecting dust and if ralph slash steven um takes it then it'll be getting use but that seems such a huge gesture to to make to someone that you just really kind of just met um yeah and it's also it's revealing also because jessica doesn't have any children and she says frank and i were never blessed that way and so there's really no one to i mean maybe there's grady obviously uh the nephew to take these family heirlooms but it's like there's a, a certain poignancy to that that you know jessica seems very content and happy with her life but there is an indication that you know she has a recognition that there's no one on to carry on her legacy or to inherit these items once she's gone yeah the writers might not have known that grady was going to fill that role at this point right we did see him in the pilot but um very much as like the nephew in later seasons Mm -hmm. she'll talk about how he's basically the closest she'll ever have to a a kid and then at some point it's even intimated that he doesn't have parents right and he lived with her but at this point they don't really have that relationship and so yeah it's like if you're a widow who has no children where is all of your stuff gonna go and so maybe getting to see someone take it and love it and use it and treasure it while you're still alive is actually a joy. Mm-hmm. And I mean, while we're on the subject of, of her belongings, my, my partner and I were talking about how wonderful her house is as a setting. Like, <laughs> it's like, that's the kind of house that I, he, he put it this way. He's like, I always wanted it to be a house and not just as, um, as, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, help me. Uh, where they film things. Set. A set? Not just a set. That, thank you. <laughs> This is the kind of elite vocabulary that you guys get on the Cabot Cove podcast right here. 
Yep. So he, my my partner said he always wanted it to be a real house and not just a set, and because mm. it is a sort of like a texture to her surroundings that I think helps immerse us in view, and, and we feel at home. And that goes back to what we said in the last episode: the sort of cozy factor of this is that there's something really, really cozy about Jessica's house that makes us want to spend time there. Yeah. Which, of course, is traditional in sitcoms and other kind of television formats. But, I mean, there's just a, a, a richness and a, a developedness to her settings that I think is really extraordinary. Well, you can tell they've lived there a long time and they've just collected a lot of stuff, right? I mean, there's just tons of knickknacks and things on the walls. And it gives that sense that this is really lived in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, which I think leads us nicely into the murder itself, because what's so striking about the, f- you know, the sort of climax is that the murderer invades her space, like invades that home and renders it into an unsafe space, which is different than the pilot where Jessica's like goes somewhere else. But now the murder comes home. And murder it's interesting comes to that- her. Yeah. And this is so- one of the first of many times when um, the trap, quote unquote, that Jessica sets for the murderer actually involves putting herself in danger. We'll see that mm-hmm. a bunch of times throughout the series, but this is really the first one. And she's sitting in her house late at night and one of the daughters breaks the window and starts to come in, presumably to kill her, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so it's interesting to me that, that, you know, whereas some of the murders that happen in Cabot Cove are sort of homegrown murders, that here, I, you know, when I did my facetious summary, I said family melodrama blows into Cabot Cove, but that's really what it is, because the motivations for the murder hinge upon a father's like domination of his daughter which is so interesting because the vision of ralph that we get like the only understanding of ralph that we as the audience get is what his interactions with jessica which he seems so affable and nice nice. yeah but in reality he might have been just a domineering tyrant who you know kind of like a king lear yeah king lear is a good is a good analogy yeah so you know he manipulates his children into and his daughter's like forces them to follow the models that he wants, either chasing away their husbands or making them take care of him. And so, you know, that's why she murders him because he dominated her whole life and forced her to live. You know, that's what she says. And that's kind of understandable in that way. And I think we've seen that sort of evil rich guy plot many times. But, you know, because Jessica is a good interpreter of character, Mm -hmm. It makes you wonder. I mean, there's a couple of lines in the episode that about, you know, uh, you you get as much love as you put out, right? Or uh, I think there's just sort of trying to intimate to like, were these daughters really as terrorized by this dad? Or were they actually just like total rich brats? And he was fine because he seems totally fine when he talks to Jessica, right? And we I mean, know that, that he, he was trying to protect Nan, um, from a boyfriend who just wanted her for her fortune. So maybe, you know, he was a good dad after all. I mean, that's they, that was my interpretation of the events because we don't have anything to suggest that the daughters are particularly nice people. Like, they don't seem, no. they don't all seem I mean, equally villainous, but neither do they seem particularly Yeah, they definitely folks. range in how nice they seem and how distraught over their dad they seem, right? Mm-hmm. Nan is sort of the one who cares the most about dad. Uh, Maggie, the one who is the murderer, kind of seems sad and she tells this whole story about helping him escape from the boat to stage his own death so he could be free from the shackles of life and 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 root out nan's fortune hunting boyfriend so it seems like she's like she cares enough about her dad to be in cahoots with him 
And then the older two, you know, one's married to a guy who clearly just wants the family money. Mm-hmm. Um, and they seem pretty flat in their terribleness, right? Yeah. So there is kind of a range. And I think, yeah, we're supposed to believe that maybe really it's not Ralph slash Stephen who's the problem. Maybe it's the right. daughters. And it strikes me also that it's it's almost as if like <laughs> a show like Dynasty or Dallas kind of like blew into the Murder, She Wrote <laughs> set. At some point, like, I mean, that's clearly the inner text, right? Like, that's clearly the kind of ethos that Ralph and his family have is that dysfunctional soap opera dynasty that's, you know, in a universe outside of Cabot Cove, but invades, if you if it makes sense. Like, it's clearly, I think, to some degree, at least the show is spoofing or at least referencing the other kind of major genres of that are dominating of the, the 1980s. The I mean, that's a really interesting point, right? There's so many series on the air at this point in the 80s about really rich families and how much they all hate each other. Mm -hmm. Uh, And by contrast, we have sweet little innocent Cabot Cove, you know. And so thankfully, these people get entangled with Cabot Cove because of a hurricane, but they leave at the end, right? And Uh we we get to go back to our peaceful world. And if you want that stuff, you can tune in to a different night and time and watch Dynasty and Dallas and Knott's Landing and all of those. Right. And it's interesting that, that, you know, because Jessica... As you as you rightly say, has that sort of incisive um, understanding of character, and so she seemed like that's what motive. And I said in our in the previous episode, I mentioned that you know the murder has stakes. Like it, it gives Jessica an investment in solving the murder that doesn't isn't always true. And this one does a similar thing because the reason that she is so intent on discovering uh, who murdered Ralph is because she's already formed this kind of extraordinary bond Ralph. with him. Yeah. And I mean, it's not necessarily romantic, but it's like, you know, these two older folks that sort of have an instant chemistry with each other and, you know, that she sees something in him that's worth celebrating and worth figuring out who committed the crime. You know, and I I kind of made fun of her for how quickly she lets him into the house and is willing to say, oh, I've got to run out and talk to Amos, but you can stay here, you know, or if you have to go out, I'll leave the door unlatched and how sort of overly trusting that is. But I think it, it also tells us that she's actually pretty lonely. And there's something really nice about finding someone who is about her age and kind of gets her. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, that's what I always um, enjoy about this series is just how well constructed it is. I'm, I'm a stickler for like narrative uh, efficiency, but also narrative like coherency. And that's what always strikes me of just how well written these episodes are. Obviously, I love the performances. I love the, the, dy- the dynamic between... Uh, JB and her fellow townspeople, but I just love how everything sort of fits together very well in the in this episode, like the and how much it reveals of character with so little. Like it has so many hidden currents that aren't necessarily obvious on the surface, but allow us to take pleasure in it. I think are we recognize even on a subconscious level as we're watching it. Yeah, and then we end with. Actually, Jess, you're not alone. You've got Ethan and you're going to go fishing and you have your very happy life. Yeah. And as, as is so often the case, you know, there's a restoration of of the balance and the goodness, the essential goodness of Cabot Cove, at least this early. Like, there, you know, we don't we don't know yet that there's going to be a, a ton of, of murders. <laughs> Half in, the population Cabot of Cabot Cove <laughs> gets slaughtered over the 12 seasons. No, it's always like people we didn't know. It's never the regulars. Right, it's somebody comes who've like town, just like... moved to town. You know, they haven't they haven't learned our friendly ways yet. Right, 
you know, it's always the external, you know, force coming into, you know, gets blown in by a hurricane or comes in to, for a land deal or, you know, exactly whatever other kind of contrived reason that people And I think to. similarly at this point, Jessica doesn't realize just what an absolute curse she is, you know, so it's maybe just coincidental that she met two nice guys who were single uh, and one ended up being a murderer and one ended up getting murdered. But, you know, I think maybe <laughs> after 12 years of this, she'll start to think like, shit, I might be the problem, right? <laughs> Let's see. What's the what's the connective <laughs> tissue between all of these different <laughs> murders? I was, you know, it occurred to me, I was like, there was 12 seasons. So that gives us like, what, 290 some episodes or whatever it is, like 290 people dying. Like, that's a lot of people to die. Well, usually like, two per episode. Yeah. This episode only has one, but, um, you know, yeah, often it's two per episode. So it's a lot of murders. Yeah. It's a lot so, of murders. Yep. It's, you so, know, yeah, it's, thought... it's kind of like interesting that she actually cares at the end. You would think by season 12, she's like, whatever. It's another dead body. <laughs> <laughs> Boo hoo. She's like, look, my. My soon-to-be lover committed a murder. Another guy that I had, you know, was getting developing a romance for died, like, all within the space of, like, a few months. Like, you know, I, it just happens all the time. Like, at this point, I'm just kind of world-weary, you know. But I, it's to the series' credit that it didn't go that direction. And I, I, I applaud J- Angela Lansbury's ability to keep that sunny disp- J.B. Fletcher disposition <laughs> from 84 to whatever it is, you know, 1996. Plus so. TV movies after that. Yeah, the Celtic Riddle, as which I was hoping the one I watched but anyway, so yeah, I think this episode does a really is a is a nice follow up to the to the pilot and sort of helping sort of set the two kind of narrative to establish, patterns really outside establish of what the, the series is. Yeah. yeah, the outside of the home uh, murder mystery and then the inside Cabot Co. So those are sort of the two main groups of murders that we're going to see. And so yeah. I think that it's, it works really well and pairs very nicely, I think, with the with the pilot. That's probably a good note to end on. Uh, I think so. so. Thank you for joining us for today's discussion of Deadly Lady and join us next week when we talk about Birds of a Feather where things get, shit's going to get wild, you guys. That's all. That's the only way I can explain it. (laughs) Shit's going to get wild. I'm Bridget Keys. And I'm TJ West. And thank you for joining us for the Cabot Cove Gazette. See you next time. Bye, everyone. Cabot Cove Gazette's theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nagarada, used under Creative Commons license. You can find us on social media. We're Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter. <laughs>